So today I have two very special ladies who share a name. One you've already met, which is Elizabeth now Appel, formerly Hefner. <laughs> so she's joining us today. Uh, we're going to do a bit of a follow-up on a topic we've talked about before, which is critical thinking. And we've invited an expert local to the area where I live currently. And this is Liz Emmett Maddox. And she used to be a philosophy professor at Georgetown University and has taught locally um, critical thinking and philosophy uh, to young people. And so today's topic really revolves around some of the things we were discussing uh, with critical thinking being, being an integral part of health and fitness and why it matters to those topics and how to navigate the ever so tricky world of fitness marketing. So there you go, Liz, take it away. <laughs> Awesome. Well, so when Chris and I were talking about this, um, we started talking a little bit about Aristotle's rhetoric. I know, crazy, right? Um, because he was one of the very first people to really dial down what it means to persuade people and how to do it effectively and all of those kind of things. And what's amazing is that 2000 plus years later, we're still seeing the same things in play. Um, so actually, if you want to pop up that graphic, Chris, that's actually a, a super helpful place to start because people may have seen or heard in some form or fashion of this, about this rhetorical triangle. So Aristotle yes. wrote a whole treatise on what he called rhetoric, which was basically the art of persuasion. Which I think is a super relevant topic because Elizabeth is my marketing person and she's a professional marketer, right? This is what she does right. for work. So I'm curious to know if this is something that was taught to you in school. Did you learn about the rhetor the rhetorical triangle? Sorry, I almost got my words mixed up. Was this to me? Yeah. It's I know so it's going to be confusing, me. right? I wish I could point <laughs> yeah. but like that doesn't work either because you don't know where you are. So, <laughs> uh, I went, I, you know what? I did not go to the best schools. I, so I can't say, I feel like, I feel like I didn't learn anything of real philosophical standards until I went to college. Right. Um, but in college, do you recall any of this material coming up? Little bits and pieces. Um, not a lot, just a, li a little bit. I feel like um, I've had to basically relearn critical thinking or actually really just learn for the first time critical thinking with you, Chris. Um, I, I, I feel like you and I are having an in-depth multi-quarter session. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I'll be interesting. curious, Elizabeth, to, to know when we start pulling these pieces apart, my guess is at least some of them will be familiar, even if you didn't get them with these particular labels. Right. Yes. Because again, this is this is stuff that's still happening, still being used very effectively, even now. And my parents, my my family is very into philosophy. So it, it got, you know, I absorbed it that way. But school, not so much. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and this wasn't a part of any curriculum I ever took either, because I came out of a very different pathway. Right. So I think the big question really is like, if you're not actively taking philosophy, where is this critical thinking stuff presented nowadays? Or is it mm. or is it not? And, and maybe that's something we can get to a little bit later. But for now, I'm going to pop this uh, triangle up here. 
Well, and I'll actually just pop in to address that question really briefly. And that's when I was asked um, by my son's high school to step in for a teacher who was supposed to be teaching them um, a research paper writing block. And I don't remember what happened. They got ill or had some conflict and weren't able to do it. And kind of at the last minute, they said, oh, Liz, I bet you could do this. I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. And can I teach media literacy while we're at it? Because this was going to be one of their first introductions to online research. Mm-hmm. And as we know, there's amazing things on the internet, and some of it's even true. Very, <laughs> like, maybe maybe eight to ten percent of it. I mean, right? But then, how what do you kind of true parts that are true? Yeah, what and kind of true? Like Personal truth. Such an important thing for these high schoolers to be introduced to. I mean, you know, they're they're digital natives. They are on the web. They're on their social media. They're doing their thing. And it just seems so important to me to say, awesome that you have access to all of this information. How do you sift through it? How do you discern what's true from what's not? And... And what are the cues? What are the clues that you use when you're researching? Again, this was, you know, for an mm-hmm. academic context. But what are the clues and cues that you use to say this is a, you know, legitimate research article? This is propaganda and all of that. So, and this is funded by the company trying to sell you something, telling you what's exactly. what. Right? So, and I think this is where the line gets really blurry for people because there's a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of, of especially uh, product marketing that is presented from the perspective of scientific research nowadays. And it, I think it's really confusing for a lot of people. So, understanding a little bit about how arguments are constructed, I think, is a huge component of being able to think critically because if you can't see the root cause, or the root motive underneath what somebody is saying, then how can you really understand their message, right? I think that's kind of what you're you're driving at. And that, you know, this is clearly not being taught as a standalone set of tools in classes anymore. Which is crazy because <laughs> just thinking about what kids are facing, like you need to teach this at a younger and younger age now because of being bombarded by all this information out there. Mm. I'm, I'm having flashbacks, Liz, when you were talking, I was having flashbacks of like, remember when you would just go to the library and you would find these <laughs> books and you're all like, I'm pretty sure this is a pretty credible source. Um, yeah. It got published, you know? Um, and I just remember growing up with with a lot of that, not looking to Facebook for my information, not um, Googling and getting a bunch of sponsored content. And I feel really, really grateful that I um, didn't have to do all the critical thinking work growing up like kids. I mean, if, you know, if they even get exposed to it nowadays. Yeah. And as a parent of somebody who's, you know, about to come up on some very challenging situations in her life, you know, my, my daughter's entering middle school or entered middle school this year. And, you know, like, it's, I think it creates a real blind spot for people of like my age and, and slightly younger and definitely older because that is how we did research. There was a published encyclopedia. There was a source or there were like films you would scroll through at the library, right? I remember having to do that for papers and it was like, oh, my eyes hurt and I don't care about this topic I'm researching and this is really hard work. But at least I know what I find I can just use because it's been vetted by a higher 
like body of, of oversight in some way. Right. And I think this is one of the really sort of glaringly obvious failings of the internet is that there is nothing required to put something on the internet. I mean, literally Liz, you and I have created multiple websites just like that. And then they're, they're live. So easy. Can go yeah. Right. Nobody's yeah. ever checked anything on anything I've ever written. Right. So, so I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I'm a little bit older than both of you guys. So <laughs> that the burden of critical thinking, let's say, or the burden of, discernment has been has been bumped down mm. right i mean at one point you know that was the the job of book editors or newspaper mm. editors or journal review committees right yeah. i mean things had to go through peer review before they made it to the light of day and not that mistakes didn't happen and sponsored content didn't sneak through in you know <laughs> pharmaceutical research or whatever but even then there was a standard that this had to be you know, your, your results had to be replicable or you mm-hmm. had to have two sources for the New York times to print that, you know, X said Y. Yeah. Right. So, so that, so that burden in a certain way of critical thinking, not that it's ever been, you know, non-existent if you just want to be a you know human person in the world, But again, like you guys were saying, you know, like the sources that you had access to, the books in the library, the newspapers that you read, the journal articles that were published, somebody else had done that work for us, basically. And at this point, you cannot count on that at all, especially when you're in the wild world of the Internet. Right. Hopefully the New York Times and reputable (laughs) newspapers still double source their information. Right. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) But the fact that we're talking about it says there's a doubt, right? Because I don't think there's enough transparency here either. And I think this is why, you know, Liz and I have both repetitively come back to the fact that it's like, wait a second, people are rampantly using logical fallacies to present arguments that just don't hold water. And you can hear it all over the board. And it's not, this is not political, right? This is not a political discussion. This is a hundred percent about, you know, the motives behind why somebody's telling you something. Right. Mm. Right. And and if it's always to sell you something, then you're polluting the waters, right? You are no longer just thinking you're actually, you're selling at all times. And so I think there's some really problematic stuff there too. And so this is why, you know, when we were talking about this, because we actually, we went to a tile shop, it was a super fun outing and (laughs) (laughs) it was a long drive. So we had a lot of time to sort of dig into this. And I thought, actually, this is really perfect for sort of what we're trying to build here, which is, hey, let's recreate that those systems that were in place Right. For people to be sure about the information that they're using to base their decisions on. Yeah. 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 So, so all right, let's, so let's go back in time. This, yeah. So let's <laughs> jump over to this triangle because I think this gives us, you know, kind of the, the puzzle pieces and, and each one of them are, are super interesting. Um, so again, if you, if you hear anything about Aristotle's rhetoric, you'll hear three words, Logos, pathos, and ethos. Um, and he thought that these were the three building blocks of a persuasive argument or any any kind of persuasion. Um, and he was talking to and about the 
orators in ancient Greece and how you were going to, you know, how you'd be most effective at persuading the, you know, the representatives to vote for X instead of Y. Um, but again, we see all of these pieces still in play all of these years later in every piece of marketing, every piece of advertising, um, you know, every piece of good journalism or filmmaking or literature. I mean, they're, they're just all there. Anything that, you know, kind of is intended to move you into action and to make you do a thing is playing with these three pieces. It's so, like basically the original behavior um, motivator, right? Like this is, this is how I, as a, as a me, got you as a you to do something I wanted you to do, right? This was exactly. the model. And so what were the building blocks of that interaction of that? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so ethos is about the speaker, the person sending the message. Pathos is about the audience, the one receiving the message. And logos is about the content of the message. That's kind of, you know, the most basic breakdown of it. Um, and so the ethos has to do with what do you know? It, it's right. Let's let's do um, marketing speak. Do you know, like, and trust the person who's talking to you? Right. And what has gone into that knowing, liking, and trusting? And again, for different kind of messages, a different kind of speaker is appropriate. Um, enter celebrity endorsements. Enter celebrity <laughs> endorsements. Enter. Right. The you know, the, there's a difference between marketing done by, you know, a doctor with a white coat and a stethoscope telling you blah, blah, blah. And the, you know, whatever Instagram model who says, oh, this is the thing I did and it can work for you, too. Right. <laughs> I mean, different, different ethos. It's going to appeal to a different person and it's, it's operating on different um, kind of different levels. Mm. Right. And yeah. somebody who might, they might be recommending exactly the same thing. They might be recommending exactly opposite things. Who knows? <laughs> right. But what's mm -hmm. going to catch your attention and the person you're most likely to believe that's, that's the question of ethos. Um, and we can, and we can, you know, kind of circle back mm -hmm. around to that. Um, well, I'm getting so, lots of ideas on the social behavioral side of this really, because, you know, yeah what you're saying about this really talks to the the idea of tribes, right? Like yes. if a member of my tribe, somebody who's in my entrusted group tells me a thing, I'm more inclined right. to believe it than some rando from the village next door that I don't know. Right. right? So leveraging that sort of social connection yeah. is super useful when used for good. Absolutely. <laughs> and incredibly dangerous when used for ill gains. Right. Right. Mm. Right. I mean, and we can also just dive in here and, you know, they, they, their, their blocks say trust, allure, and credibility. Again, I would say no like trust, Yeah. right? It's the same, same thing. Um, and, you know, of course, we could dive into a whole interesting conversation about what is it that makes someone likable, trustworthy, and knowable? Mm -hmm. how, how does the color of your skin or your gender or your age or any of those Mm -hmm. variables play into that yeah your job equation. or your social status or your number of children or exactly. this is what i'm saying about this us versus them model that's right. always at play in human behavior right there's there's always an in crowd and an out crowd which is not right. necessarily super 
useful for where we're at in society nowadays. Right. Like it would be much more useful if we made a much bigger in-group and a much smaller out-group. Right. Um, but this is definitely human behavior at its base, right? Like I need right. to feel safe. And in order to feel safe, I need to know who I can trust. Mm-hmm. And that's based off of, you know, how much like me are they? How different from mm-hmm. me are they? Um, what experience do I have with them, right? So credibility, mm-hmm. you know, do they, have they demonstrated something right. um, that, uh, that they can do that I can't? And allure, allure is like the the funnest one we could talk about, right? From right? The yeah. of like attractiveness, especially as it's as it pertains to health and fitness, mm-hmm. because for a very long time, the only thing that gave you trust and credibility was your appearance mm-hmm. in right. in health and wellness. Right. Yeah. And how how messed up is that? Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. That's like that's a whole other conversation, conversation, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Right. So, all right. So we we can come back to this ethos bit because again, there's so much there. Um, Pathos is, I mean, the word doesn't translate really well into English. You know, when we hear that, we think of like kind of pathetic and, you know, it's not an awesome word. Mm. Um, But it's really just about what touches your emotions. How do you, how do you respond on an emotional level to what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what's what's coming at you. And again, this is part of a bigger context, right? Because, you know, what's what's sometimes shown is there's a big, a big circle around the whole triangle that is the context. Of I have another diagram that actually has that. I don't know if it's worth. Uh, no, no, no. It's a, yeah, yes. it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I like the other one better because it's, it's okay. But yes, but just to say, you know, let's, you know, all that white space there is the context in which this communication is happening. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing worth worth noticing as well. And so pathos is this way of connecting to people's emotions, right? And that's what all good communication does. It makes you feel something either about yourself or about the story you're hearing or about the world around you. Um, And if it doesn't make you feel anything, it's useless. Basically as communication, it's failed. (laughs) And it's certainly certainly not going to make you do anything. Right. Cause again, the part of this whole, this whole project is to get you to do a thing. Um, And if you're not feeling any kind of emotion about it, whether it's, inspired or terrified or worried or I mean and we can you know we can dive into those different emotions and the different motivations and how they impel us to action differently but that's kind of the idea behind pathos is like a message has to have some kind of emotional impact it has to have an emotional connection um and so yeah and they also talk about values here right I mean that's that's another thing you know if, if you're if you are appealing to my values and says, you know, well, you know, a good human being would recycle all of their cans and bottles, right? <laughs> like that's, that's a message we've been getting, right? We've, we've heard that message. We're like, oh, I'm a good human being, right? That's going to impel me to a certain kind of action. Not because I have an emotion about it necessarily, because, but because I identify with that value, mm-hmm. right? I want to save the planet for my children and grandchildren um, think it's the right thing to do. Right. So it's, so emotion, I, I guess all that to say, just, you know, like don't, let's don't get too narrow a definition of emotion um, mm-hmm. because values are, are different than emotions, but they can move us to action in a similar way. Um, well, often in a deeper way, because our belief systems, yeah. right. Have a huge impact on our decisions. Exactly. And Liz, I know, you know, we've talked before about pain points in marketing. 
right? Right. Like find a person's pain point and you can compel mm-hmm. them to action. And, and oftentimes the most effective tool that you'll see used is fear. Fear yep. is definitely the one that spurs the, you know, the most action short term. <laughs> and this right. is what's really fascinating about it is that fear is functional short term, but long term, it's actually love or compassion or deeper values and priorities that are built into the society as a whole so that everything functions optimally. Right. And you can see this play out in children's movies all the time. <laughs> like pick a children's movie. We could pull the plot line out and apply it here and be like, oh, no, this person's creating fear and wants you to do this thing. But it's the wrong thing to do. Right. And if you do the right thing, which is the harder thing that's going to get you a better long term outcome, you win. Right. Right. So it's like, it's really fascinating how many places this pyramid or this triangle pops up that you don't realize until you start dissecting it. Right. Right. What I was so excited about for today was because it was like, (laughs) yeah, let's pull some real life, you know, examples into this too, where this is ever present in culture. This is ever Mm. present. Absolutely. And something I'd be really fascinated to know. I know we want to get through the other corner too, but like, this is a very Western approach, right? So when we learn philosophy and you're, for example, if you're a philosophy professor in the Western world, do you only study Aristotle's rhetoric or do you get another model from a, from an Eastern culture as well? I did not. That may have changed, but um, no, typically philosophy in Western universities is Western philosophy. It's Greek, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's I'd love to starts, know what the other models are, right? right? Yeah. I mean, you can have a class on Eastern philosophy and, you know, or comparative philosophy or things like that. Um, but no, pretty, pretty standardly, the, the, the baseline model is definitely going to be the philosophy that started with the Greeks and is trucking on. Which, so. like, how powerful is it that this framework has basically formed the foundation for communication in multiple languages in the Western Hemisphere, right? Like, Absolutely. that's nuts to contemplate when you really yep. kind of think about the impact of that. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And I guess what I will say is that Aristotle thought that he was codifying what he had observed as effective maneuvers, Right. Yes. And then sort of like, you know, detailing is like, OK, well, if you really want to, you know, persuade your fellow, you know, electors, voters in the public, here's, you know, here's how to do that. Um, so it was kind of a, a combination of observation and then prescription. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into in this corner of the grid of the triangle. Yeah. but. Let, let's just let's just jump up to logos and then we'll you know circle back around. Um, so logos is the content of the message, the words, the images, the the graph that shows the you know profits going up if you do X, Y, or Z, or right all of those kind of things. Um, and these are supposed to be the facts of the matter, right? Sort of verifiable, observable. Um, you know, the facts. And yeah, irrefutable things that, you know, are non-negotiable. Things. Exactly. Um, and, you know, here's the, the little bubbles up here, you know, logic, reason, proof. It's the intellectual appeal, right? So, again, any one of these without the others falls flat. I mean, we've all sat through presentations 
And it's just like the Charlie Brown going, mom, 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 right? (laughs) Data. I mean, I don't know. This is probably a mean thing, but I sort of think of insurance salesmen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Maybe they've come a long way too, right? And maybe they've they started in the logic, way. in the logos area, and they've moved right. over a bit, right? <laughs> but but that's kind of what I imagine, right? It's like, okay, well, here's the risk, and here's the da 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 da. What they really need is Will Smith to come in and sell insurance, <laughs> right? right? Totally. Um, <laughs> but but this has to be there. This has to be there, right? Because if you are trying to persuade somebody of a concrete outcome in the world, presumably you have some data, you have some experience, you have something to offer that says, yes, if we choose path X, here's the likely outcome. If we choose path Y, here's the likely outcome. I really think X is the better way and here's why, right? I mean, that's that's all. And I mean, honestly, like at one point in the world, I feel like this was kind of the most um, no-brainer part of it. Like, there were facts that we could all mostly agree on. Back in the day. Stage of the game. (laughs) This is a freaking wild card. But I think think it speaks to the power of the other two corners, right? Because if... If yes. you have somebody who's persuasive enough and yep. who has enough emotional pull, it yep. gets a little blurry, right? This whole fake yeah. news thing and the idea that there are alternative facts. I, right. <laughs> I remember hearing that for the first time and just being like, what is happening? Because <laughs> how how can you possibly construct a, a what, what most people yes. will call civilized argument or conversation right. out of just fabrication right because right. that's where that's where we're headed if we're not careful and if we don't Absolutely. give equal weight to the three corners right right yeah makes me rub my imaginary beard i'm greek so i'm you know any day it's coming in now so yeah <laughs> so actually I, I just I, now that now that we've just sort of you know given like a little thumbnail of these elizabeth do now do these sound familiar to you in your marketing training oh yeah yeah yeah, I mean, hi- hyper aware of these always, yet not always thinking about this chart and the breakdown. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that it's not presented as this anymore, but that it's right. clearly, clearly used. I, I can remember something very, very similar to this in sales training I've had. Yeah, exactly. but it was never, ever labeled as philosophy or mm. anything. Well, again, because uh, what's really the object good. of sales training? You want a person to do a thing. Right. Right? So you you lean on all of these different pieces. I would love to know if there's an alternate model for this. Like, did somebody else in the world come up with another way to persuade people of things? Or is this really the best way? Right? Like, That's a good what? question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean... Honestly, in the, the place that I think you would look for that would probably be in... The internet. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook. I was, was going to say graduate <laughs> programs in marketing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, right? right. In marketing, huh? That's... that. Huh. If, if anybody is going to have done research into, you know, is there a better way? Is there a different way? Um, it, it, I would think it would be those folks. I think it would just be... Uh, maybe a, a 
a slight change to the model, I doubt it would be actually a full-blown remodel. Right. Um, it's I, I mean, just looking at this already, I'm like, it's all <laughs> logos. Like, you don't really need logic, reason, and proof, really. You just need the allure, like the, the hint of the it. Illusion like, of- the illusion of, like, you see this study here? You see this graph? Now don't look at the bottom. Don't look at the bottom. Don't look how I skewed this information or like it paid for this information. See this graph? That right. looks good to you, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a graph. Right. Well, it's, it's social proof, right? And this is yeah. this comes back to behavior psychology and, and just understanding how the human brain fundamentally works, right? Until very recently, we didn't have a lot of ability to generate a lot of fake facts right like nature was pretty straight up factual and that was what we had you know like it's raining yeah (laughs) you can argue with me whether or not it's raining at your house but like I can put my hand out and it gets wet and it's raining you know and so as we've evolved into a more like intangible sphere sphere of things Mm -hmm. like services versus just straight up products or um, tangible resource exchanges this becomes more fluid and more Mm -hmm. difficult to pin down and so I think it's a really interesting time to be talking about this, this framework, right? Because is it still the absolute best? Like, because then we could argue, how do you define proof? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the, I, I don't want to like go off on a really weird tangent, but, you know, one of the, I would say one of the advancements is that for so long, only certain people were considered to have access to truth mm. right and those were white dudes with degrees and Money. if they said a thing they would be believed and their study participants who were like um yeah actually not right were completely dismissed their experience yeah. their you know their truth was dismissed out of hand if anybody ever even heard it mm. right so, so this this question of of logos and and truth and facts, I mean, it's it's complicated in interesting ways, and not necessarily for the worse, right? right? Because there are more voices in the conversation, and that's a good thing. It now becomes a problem of trying to triage all of that information, right. yeah. though, for accuracy. And I think this yeah. is, yeah. it seemed at first glance, we were going to spend a lot of time on the bottom half of the pyramid, right? Because that <laughs> seems where the juicy stuff is. But super oddly in the world of today, it's actually up in the logos area, a lot of the questions, because it's, it is this idea that, you know, knowledge was restricted, education was restricted, right. uh, even literacy, people weren't allowed to learn to read for mm-hmm. centuries right and we could and they weren't allowed to, talk more about importantly than, so i'm just going to interrupt you more importantly than not being allowed to read they weren't allowed to write yeah mm. right so they weren't allowed to share their experience and have their knowledge make it into the world yeah which makes you question the framework upon which all of our societies are built really when you look at it. And that's why I was saying from this Western perspective, this seems irrefutable. It seems like there couldn't possibly be a different model that would work as effectively. And that's, that's part of your brain trying to create a framework within which you can function. Right. So it's useful, 
But it's also super duper important to question those things because when you don't, you don't know if, again, you've not got proof, right? (laughs) Right? If you've not tried anything but a starburst, you don't know if Skittles are better or not. Like you just, oh, it's another rainbow candy. Who cares? But like, they're not the same. Right. (laughs) And you can have a preference, but you can't like logic your way out of it. There's going to be factually the fact that Skittles are better. Right. Obviously. And, you know, for better or worse, I feel like there's there's enough here in any in any marketing message to keep us busy for a while. Yeah, right? I mean, we could take any ad and we could say, OK, so who who's behind this? Right. Mm-hmm. Do I know them? Do I like them? And I trust them. Should I? know them, like them, trust them, right? Are they a legitimate authority, right? Are they the right person to, you know, should I have any faith whatsoever in this person? Um, I love that nobody was going to call me on the Skittles thing either, because like, obviously you all agree it's the best candy, right? Obviously. Always. I like, I, I, I just like chocolate. I don't care about Skittles or Starburst Christ. That's why I'm not arguing. See, but you're not allowed to write, read or write, Liz. So I guess. It's okay. But I think, I think it's really important to look at these, you know, they, they may be somewhat silly examples in this context, but I think this is the kind of data skewing and bias that's right. really important to identify when you create a paradigm for yourself to make decisions, right? Because yeah. it's, it's like... <laughs> This is from all of the, you know, cross-cultural training and and work that I've done is like, it really, really forces you to take a look at your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Everything is is an assumption. You know, you, you can't function without them or you just never make a decision. You'd be like a useless (laughs) blob of too many facts and ideas. Right. But at the same time, how, how you decide to keep certain beliefs and get rid of others has a huge impact on who you trust right? How they're credible, um, like in what sphere they generate credibility, what emotions they create in you as well, right? So when you have a group of people that share a set of beliefs, you can create a set of rules and systems that will manipulate their behavior better than another culture, right? Which is why marketing looks super different everywhere you go. Like a message that would sell pasta to Italians would not sell pasta to Americans. (laughs) Same product. Totally. It is interesting, like just looking at my Instagram and anything (laughs) where there there are these um, advertisements that are obviously set, I think, for global consumption and targeting. I get a lot of these weird games that um, it's like it's like like a makeover game or something where it shows a woman where it's like, um, you know, like this virtual little cartoon woman where um, it shows her in like this plot line where she, if she doesn't dress well or shave her legs or something, this guy will not be interested in her. And I'm just like sitting there with my American, you know, nine, 90s child, like feminist, you know, ideals. And I'm just like, I am so offended, so offended right now. And I'm like looking at this also as a marketing professional, like this is not, to me, I'm like, this doesn't look made for American audiences. Like this really doesn't read for American audiences. And um, just how much with social media, how much um, kind of 
odd things there are that we perceive as odd, but make complete Mm. sense in other cultures. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. I was just, I was on a call with a coach just before we got on here and I can't remember what brought it up, but I was talking about something about all of the podcast likes we've gotten from Egypt. And it brought up a story about when I was teaching in France, I was teaching a, he was Egyptian. He spoke English fluently, but he needed to learn French to live in France. So I was teaching him French. His wife spoke fluent French and English and refused to leave the room while I was teaching him because men and women should not be alone in a room together unless they are married. And this was a massive problem for her that I was a female teacher teaching her husband another language. And she she was extremely um, involved in the teaching process, mostly in the form of yelling at her husband. And it, it became a real contentious place because it was like, I can't actually teach him French if you're going to yell at him in English the entire time about his sucky French. Like, this isn't moving us forward. And so in the end, the solution was she sat outside the door. I told her, I said, just, I need you to not be visible to him so that he can focus on what I'm saying. You can leave the door cracked, but if you inject any commentary, I'm going to ask you to move your chair five feet every time you say something. Because I didn't know what else to do with it, because it was like, (laughs) I just couldn't get any progress with this poor guy, because every time she would yell at him, he would just sort of like shut down again. And it was super fascinating, because from the outside, when I start telling that story, people are like, oh, men and women can't be in the same room. Men are terrible. And in this particular situation, it was actually the woman creating the conflict in the situation over this perception that men and women could not be in the same room, even though it was a professional environment. And so when you when you start to change your frameworks and you start to say, okay, this makes sense. And this reads perfectly well for this audience, but not for that one. Like, why? And why do we all have such different beliefs when we all exist in the same, you know, air bubble? <laughs> it's like we have this little thin air bubble. Right. And yet we still seem to be able to argue about everything. It's like, there's just not, there's, there's so much in common. We should be able to come to a series of facts and truths that are irrefutable that we can then build some of these other things from. I mean, maybe, maybe social media will actually be the saving grace in this way. Maybe it starts out as kind of like this horrific thing, which it really has turned into and become like, Oh, we can all operate as one in a beautiful way. Not a creepy Borg Star Trek way. <laughs> a creepy Borg Star Trek. I mean, that's a, a beautiful thought. I, I really wouldn't that be great. That is the case. <laughs> And it, it, it always is a messy process, right? Yeah. So as a philosophy professor, this again comes right. back into your wheelhouse of, you know, you've had to study the rise and fall of these ancient civilizations, I'm sure, along with <laughs> some of this other stuff, right? And there's an arc, right? And For it's sure. messy. It's messy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is, and a concern that I have, I mean, I love you. I love your, um, you know, this, Maybe maybe social media can, you know, kind of um, help us all understand one another better. What is concerning to me is where I see the pockets forming Mm -hmm. and then also the homogenization Mm. of global life. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, almost every continent has English as its predominant language now and we're losing native languages because there's no one else 
you know, they're not being taught in the same way. Everybody's like, yeah, fuck it. We'll just learn English. Mm. Right. <laughs> like, Yeah. And well, there were pockets I of this. Love that. <laughs> yeah. There were pockets of this historically, right. You know, French was the international language for right. a really long time in Greek and Latin. And you can see all of this spread. Exactly. And, and even within, you know, East Asian dynasties, I guess, or empires, you would see this too. Right. But yeah but this is the first time it's been on a global scale. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's got interesting repercussions, right? Well, and it, it makes sense with a lot of the buying power in uh, English speaking countries, specifically America. Right. So, you know, everyone has to learn that language if you want to dominate the marketplace. Mm-hmm. It's true. And and I, also, I, I, want, like I mean, one of the things I wonder, and Chris, you would be the one to answer this I feel like other countries are much more interested in teaching languages aside from their native language than the U.S. is. Mm. There's very little focus and legitimate emphasis on the need and desire and value in learning other languages in most elementary through high school education. In my I think a lot of it, yeah, yeah. Abs- you're a thousand percent right. I mean, I think a lot of it is proximity based. Yeah, because if you if you just look at Europe alone, right. you have 25 member states. Well, 24. Ha! Thanks, England. But you have t- <laughs> 24 member states, and within two hours drive of each other, you've got completely different languages with different language roots. You've got Slavic languages, Romance languages, Germanic languages. Um, you know, it's it's a lot going on. And then you have, is you dig back. I unfortunately did have to study a lot of this in my French degree in, in college um, was I studied medieval French and the origin of French as it split off from German and the, I think it was the Angles had their own dialects as well. And so you get this Anglo-Saxon kind of split, you get the Germanic split and then you get the Romance language split. And <clears throat> the overlap of those languages at the time was super interesting because of the fact that of what we, we spoke about previously, which was very few people were able to read and write <laughs> and learn. And so there was much, it was much slower, the written translations of things. And what actually happened was there were these like 1% at the top who could read and write the, the language of the land. And then all of these dialects below. And what they found was they couldn't communicate effectively with all of the tribes without generating a common language. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you got the split of these languages um, was in an effort to communicate with the peasantry. Right. (laughs) Right. But they had to take some and leave some. And so it's a really interesting, like you could dig way back into the origins of each of the modern languages that we see today. And you can look at the tribal languages and and just how different they are um, in places that have less uh, mainstream, for lack of a better word, that's a really shitty word for that, but like mainstream languages, like the top 10, right? right? If you go to Africa, you can throw a rock and hit six different languages within a few square miles. Same right. within, you know, on a way lesser scale, you go to England, you drive two miles, somebody's accent is a completely different accent, mm-hmm. like unintelligible to two mm-hmm. miles away. And that speaks a lot to people's movement patterns um, over time and how, you know, how stationary you have to be <laughs> mm-hmm. to develop a completely different dialect to the, the village next door. Right. So it talks, you know, back to your point about the globalization of English. <sighs> it's a huge tool. Right. Right? It's a huge tool for communicating with more people and generating common ideas. However, it has its drawbacks in the loss of some of the individual cultural perspectives that we had. Mm-hmm. Um 
Sorry, that was a long-winded answer to that. That was a really good question, right? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think this is why I feel like so many of the liberal arts need to overlap better in college because we For all sure. get in our corners, you know, and we right. get deeper and deeper into our one pocket. But actually, it's really hard to separate culture from philosophy, mm-hmm. from, you know, language. Because they're from all history. part of the same, yeah, from history, because they're all part of the same thing and they all happened because of each other. Right. So, you know, I think the, the point of today is really to give people an understanding of what's being used to sell them something, right? Right. right? The second component is what do you do about it yeah. once you recognize it, right? So I think maybe shifting over to back over to the critical thinking chart. This is Bloom's taxonomy, which we can also dive into if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this framework that I pulled up before about like, how do I take information in? Mm-hmm. What do I do with it once I've got it? How do I vet it? How do I come up with my own ideas? How do I then talk to other people about my ideas? And then what do I do once I'm done with that process? And, and how many times do I iterate that, right? So right. I'd love to hear sort of how you address this topic in your classes. Like, where did you really start with people, kids, I guess, really? So um, so when I was doing the critical media, the, the media literacy training, honestly, we, we started with who's the speaker, right? And so... Oh, so ethos, right? You started so with ethos. ethos. Right, exactly. Who, who is this, you know, who's the author of this article? What's behind, is it, a, a, you know, a, now, now we have a, is it a sponsored? Is it not sponsored? What's the publication? Where, you know, again, is it sponsored by a, again, you know, air quotes, reputable news source? And I, I handed them out the, um, there's a great, um, and it's it's a work in progress. So it's a I forget what it, I can look up the name of it. It's basically like a media bias chart, and it's like this bell curve of left leaning to right leaning, and then highly um, what should we say reliable versus unreliable. You know the one I'm talking about. Have you seen this? Yes, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, this rings a bell. Hang on. Yeah. Let me get it. Literally. <laughs> yeah. So, so I would hand that out to them. And then we would talk a little bit about, you know, like, where does your, yeah, like, where do you get your information? Right. Are you reading Buzzfeed all day long or do you dip into the New York Times? Right? Buzzfeed's not credible. Well, <laughs> I didn't say it. They said it. Sorry, Buzzfeed. <laughs> Sorry, Buzzfeed. Um, well, they put out a lot of information, which would make you think that they're not credible. So, well, right, <laughs> and and again, you know, this is you know, these are dealing into the finer points, right? You know, is everything that Buzzfeed puts out wrong? No, obviously, right. Um, but are they the most reliable source when you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I love to put this in middle school perspective for my daughter. It's like, you have five friends, right? One of them, anything they say, you're pretty sure is complete bullshit. You know it because they've proven it to you over and over again that what they say isn't reliable. One right. friend is kind of the whistleblower who goes, Mm, I don't think that's true. And then you have like three other friends along that spectrum somewhere, right? right? Like, exactly. and so if you can pick a friend and decide what news 
like organization exactly. represents that friend or vice versa, you have a pretty good mm-hmm. idea of whether or not you should take everything they say or how, what percentage of what they say. Right. Mm-hmm. And in what domain, if yeah. I want to know what the, you know, hippest thing to watch on Netflix is, absolutely buzzfeed bring it on what do you like sure. <laughs> totally screen rant yeah that's my screen rant right like yeah. yes i will listen to buzzfeed on on that topic <laughs> i think that's a really important concept too because it's it it can be highly topic based like nobody's an expert yeah. in everything right? right so who are you listening to and what's their credibility again right, right. yeah right. like when you're listening to celebrities and they're deep political analysis and you're like I don't know about that right boy I had somebody jump to mind like immediately (laughs) there's one out there right now who's doing all sorts of very deep political analyzing but I'm not going to name any names because you know but I think I think this is a really interesting place to start with critical thinking Right. right And then, and then there's the question of what, okay, so there's like the who's the speaker, and then there's the why. Why are they doing this? Why are they mm-hmm. sending this message? Why, why have they written this article? Why are they doing this podcast, right? Is it to educate? Is it to inform? Is it to sell? Is it to sell under the guise of educating or informing, <laughs> right? Like all of those kind of, you know, and I think those are kind of, you know, like if you're going to boil it down to three basic motivations, it's those, mm-hmm. right? And again, you know, my son is a, you know, 22 year old. He loves like comedian podcasts, right? He, he listens to a lot, you know, he, he gets a lot of his entertainment. That's, you know, he, he listens to a lot of entertainment messages. If they try to mix in some, some selling or something, would he snag it? I don't know, right? Mm. It's like all in the entertainment, right? Yeah. So again, so just being able to to pick out those those motivations, and then again, like who's behind that, right? I mean, as as I've you know said to my students, the the main message, the you know the main thing any news outlet, any any website, anything wants to do is to keep you there. Mm-hmm. They want to keep your eyeballs as long as possible because let's guess what. At the end of the day, somebody's selling something, right? Even the New York Times, even Mm -hmm. NPR, right? All of our, whatever our, you know, kind of things at the top of this list are, right? They've got advertisers um, that support what they're doing. And so, so that's, you know, again, in a, in a reliable, well-run news organization, editorial is on one side, advertising is on the other, on the other, and never the twain shall meet. Um, in sketchier organizations, there's, you know, I mean, even our beloved uh, Boulder camera, there's the, there's the advertorial, right? Advertorial. You heard that word? No, I'm not. That's a new one. I had a physical response to that word though yeah there's a thing called an advertorial and and it'll say you know again similar to sponsored content and you know maybe it's a a real estate piece on the greatest new development in longmont (laughs) i think this is right and this is why critical thinking is becoming more and more relevant to to master because they're they're blurring lines left and right you know and and it's something i tell clients all the time is you know and it's the time of year where everybody has tried 
a new exciting diet or product <laughs> or something and come from a credible source. Probably right. there's somebody they've been following, somebody they generated mm-hmm. trust in somebody that they think knows what they're talking about. And I always say like at the end of the day, at the end of whatever message they're giving you, if there is an opportunity to buy something, you really, really need to check the credibility because no one who is trying to get your money for something has pure motives. <laughs> Nobody has motives for you, right? Because by nature, if I'm selling you something, I am going to profit from that. I benefit from that. Right. And at that point, now it's like polluted waters. And, I, and I've had this conversation so many times with other coaches when they're trying to sell coaching. Right. Right. They're like, okay, I'm, I'm developing these packages and I'm guaranteeing results to people. And I'm always saying, right, but like you're making a promise you're not in control of. Right. Right. So now you're putting yourself in a really tricky spot because if you're not careful, this impacts your credibility. And you see all sorts of defense mechanisms pop up um, in coaching around this of trying to defend my results versus somebody else's or my method being better versus somebody else's to try to sort of sort of morally whitewash this for themselves. And and it's Mm -hmm. a really deep thing that happens. I don't think very many people do this like consciously. Mm -hmm. But it, it creates a, set, a setup where you can't just educate if you're selling. You can't. Right. You know, I think that's a, one of the very few things I'll take a hard line on. But if, if you're actively selling something, you can't possibly be educating. And that's why we have no sponsors. We have no sponsors. And I, and I will say now, like, it'll be a cold day in hell <laughs> before right. I sponsor anything. Because I don't want that to be... So oh, wait, well, what if like a great brand as the marketing don't person, care? Like, I don't, I've actually turned down brands. I know as a marketing person, you're like, but Chris, yeah, but but Chris. No. <laughs> I actually, I had this argument once with um, a, a girl who was working for me and we were, you know, she was working on building my in- Instagram profile at the time. And she was like, well, this product wants you to just say something about them. And I was like, no, yeah, I just won't do it. Like for me, it's a hard yeah. line because I, as soon as I start doing that in any way, I'm polluting my credibility as far as I'm concerned. And maybe I'm a purist and it'll bite me in the ass, which it probably will, but I'm okay I with mean, that. I think it really <laughs> depends. Like if you're, if you, if, if a brand came to you that was like some bullshit fitness nutrition shake that was full of a bunch of crap and you're like, yeah, I'm totally going to, I, I would, I would be out. I'd be like, I'm not doing that. But right. if, you know, something not even in our wheelhouse you know, but a product that you liked and you're like, yeah, you know, I think this, I think people would enjoy hearing about this and it has nothing to do with fitness and nutrition. Still, still like shaking it. your head. You're like, no. no, I still wouldn't touch it because again, it's like, that's, that's a hundred percent, a hundred percent perspective based. Right. Right. The line is hard. What if it's a Either... sock company that no. says fuzzy socks. Nope. <laughs> Just no. Right. Because again, like I, I, and, and maybe this is where I'm, I'm particularly rigid. But it's a slippery slope. Yeah, it is. Think, you know, and you're and like, oh, we they gave me a little and, money. And, <laughs> totally, they gave oh, me a no. little money, and then Lululemon you, came in, and they're all like, "Well, we have a lot of problematic issues with our brand, but why don't we pay?" We you have more fuzzy money? socks. You promoted fuzzy socks over here, so why yeah. won't you promote fuzzy socks here? You're opening a door, right? And yeah. it doesn't mean it's going to lead to anything. I'm sure if there was like fuzzy socks <laughs> or whatever, and they wanted us to promote them. <laughs> Is there a moral conflict there? Not immediately, no. But it is this slippery slope and it allows in a lot of arguments that I don't want to get into, you know? And I think that I'm actually thinking back, Liz, to uh, how this conversation started was because you, we, we were upstairs in my house 
Liz and I are neighbors. I should probably say that at some point, but we're neighbors. That's how we met. And in my room, when I was homeschooling my daughter last year in her office there, I have these posters up on um, biases and logical fallacies. And they're just in my kid's room because I want them ever present in her mind when people are talking to her um, that, you know, there's a motive. Right. right. Probably people have an agenda. That's part of why we communicate with each other. We don't, if we didn't need stuff from each other, we wouldn't have developed language in the first place. Right. So it's not all bad, but it's important to understand what somebody else wants from you when they're communicating with you mm. so that you can make educated decisions for yourself. Right. Which I and think is the point the of critical thinking. <laughs> And the best kind of communication, I mean, it's easy to kind of like slide down the slippery slope and go, oh my God, everybody's going to need to be lived. It's all scammy, blah, blah, blah. But let's right. face it, when we're, I mean, I'm thinking about in our personal relationships, like when we're really clear about what we need and want from another person, like, you know, when you've been married for almost 30 odd years, <laughs> right? That's actually a really good thing. Mm, and when somebody yeah. can clearly say, yes, I can do that. Or no, I can't do that. Or how about we meet in the middle on this or that, right? Like, that's awesome communication. <laughs> like, that's, that's when it all works really well. And yeah. when someone is super clear and says, hey, I've got this thing, and I want to sell you this water bottle right here. Great. Maybe I want your water bottle, but then, at least I know what's going on here, right? There's transparency. Right. Mm. <laughs> and then I can say a clean no, yes or a clean no, and it's just clean, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think where where we all start to feel icky about it is when it's not clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. And and so that's where and so that's where kind of you know just to you know kind of dial it back. So that's where you know kind of asking these questions about the speaker, right? And we all have that. I feel like we have an internal sense about when somebody is speaking to us in a clean way and when somebody's speaking to us in like kind of a muddy, icky way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that just doesn't feel good. And if we can put <laughs> our finger on why, like, oh, yeah, that feels kind of gross because you said you were going to make me laugh, but now you're trying to sell me a water bottle. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's no- rule number one. If anyone is really charming, never trust them ever <laughs> or get in a relationship with them. I'd like nine <laughs> thoughts about that. But yeah. I think charming people should not be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting because again, I think it's like back to the sponsorship thing for just a second, because right. what you've you've just said is really I think such a critical point is that it's fine when the motives are clear, right? Like if if you come to me as a nutrition client and you say, I want you to tell me different things to eat and I tell you different things to eat, but nobody's paying me to tell you what to eat. Right. Like if I don't tell you to eat tomato or if I tell you to eat tomatoes, (laughs) right. You don't think that the tomato growers association is sponsored by the tomato sponsoring me. Right. Like, but if I tell you, you need to take these five supplements, right. Mm. immediately there's another level there. And I think this is the thing, you know, why I'm so hardline about sponsoring anything is because then it pollutes my recommendations for anything. So I'm perfectly happy to tell you things that I like or like to use, but I'm, I'm never going to take any money from them because now it's disingenuous. Right. Mm. Even if I still really do like that thing, I still think it muddies the waters. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I'm just absolutely. thinking about going to like doctor's offices and when they recommend random medication, it really freaks me out because you're well, always like, hmm. That used to be illegal, right? There was a very clear um, decision made. I can't remember what year it was where before this marketing of prescription drugs to the public directly was illegal. And it is illegal in almost every other country. Right. There are only like three or four other countries, I think. And don't quote me on that number. Cause I obviously have not done specific research on that. I am not a credible source, <laughs> but it's a very small number of places where this is allowed. And if you watch international commentary on America, when people talk about things that are different in the U S it's one of the right. top 10 that you mm. can watch a drug commercial right. in your home and you can, go to a doctor and they will specifically market you a drug that is only that is an america thing and it talks it speaks to why we started this podcast in the first place which was the polluting of the healthcare system to a for-profit system that makes it very hard for the person entering into a care situation to understand the motives of the people who are serving them right god did you guys see that that um prescription medication commercial that was um, being endorsed by Khloe Kardashian. Oh no, really? I was like, I was, I don't know how this popped up. I think because I subscribed to Peacock, that streaming service and you get Mm -hmm. commercials on it. Mm. Um, And Khloe Kardashian popped up with this prescription medication, you know, um, ad. And I was like, what is this for? Because they never actually outright tell you. I don't understand right. why they don't just tell you what it's for. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, but I was so <laughs> curious because I'm like, well, if they have a Kardashian doing it, then it must be, you know, butt related or lip related <laughs> or something to make your butt and lips bigger. I don't know. But it was like a headache. It was a medicine for headaches. And I was like, you paid Khloe Kardashian. God only knows how much money. <laughs> For a headache medicine? Wow. Well, when yeah. we were watching the Olympics a few months ago, there was, I think it was like a migraine medication. I, they were showing these various Olympic athletes who, you know, suffer from migraines. And then in the very tiny print, it said, you know, I don't know, so-and-so does not take blah, 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 blah drug. Really? Like, okay. That is so that is so gross, right? Even though I'm in marketing, I'm like that's I'm really grateful because the marketing I do is for like these small to medium sized businesses where Mm -hmm. they're just like I sell this product and or service, and you know I just want people in my area to know about (laughs) it or something, you know. Um, And then other people are like, yeah, like a lot of B two B stuff and. Other people are like, oh, yeah, I need that. That's great. It's none of this weird, I mean, sometimes, but it's often not this weird, manipulative, like, you don't really need this, but um, Chloe Kardashian. You know, when I, I, for a short while, had a small internet-based business, I did a ton of marketing training, and the ones that I liked were the ones that were like, okay, we're not going to do gross marketing. Mm -hmm. We're going to do, like... Here's who I am and here's what I have to offer. And you want it? Awesome. Here's how you get it. You don't? Cool. I still yeah. love you. Right? Like it was not, it was, so, really, it was really so, about not gross marketing. So, so I guess some industries is, can do that. What's that? Some industries can do that. Right. It's completely fine. But in, with health and fitness, it's so oversaturated. Right. No one's playing a non-gross game except for Chris, who won't get even endorsed <laughs> Chris by is socks. Not gross. <laughs> well, Yay, and, not gross. Yay. Well, and 
actually, and I think part of it, you know, maybe just to like kind of wheel us around to the second part of the triangle, you know, part of what makes it gross is the kind of emotions that people are working with. Yeah. Right. So, it, I mean, and it's just what you said at the very beginning, Chris. It's like when, when you're marketing, when your persuasion, when your messaging is eliciting feelings of fear or being left out or not being cool or like all of those kind of things, you feel icky. Mm-hmm. Is it going to move you to action? Sure, sometimes. More than we might like to admit, right? Um, short term. Yeah, short, short term. term. It yeah. will. But the problem is, is that this has been the marketing strategy for long enough that we're now seeing systemic issues of depression and inadequacy in right. people because the consistent messaging that they're getting from marketing is they're not good enough. Right. No matter what they do, they're not good enough. And there is a product to fix it. And so you've trained generations. And I, you know, I think back to watching cartoons on Saturday mornings as a kid, like we were really one of the first generations where that was a thing. Um, And just the manipulativeness of the marketing really escalated over the time that I was growing up and then to seeing Mm -hmm. some of the things um, that are, that come out now, it's like, you're told from a very young age that unless you have this thing, or look right. this way, or do this thing, that you're not good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what you get is actually like mental health issues in the greater mm-hmm. population around this. You get anxiety because people are constantly being told that there's something to be afraid of. <laughs> you right. get depression because they can't do anything about it and they can't live up to the standard that's being presented. So then you get drugs marketed mm-hmm. for depression and anxiety, perfect solution to the problem they created. So- and it's like freaking, it's a mind blowing circle. Right. And I think the answer is community, right? Because when you look yeah. at the, the base of this pyramid, it functions off of communication and how right. people communicate with each other, right? So yes, this, this can be used for ill. Right. <laughs> it is. But we can turn it around, right? We, we can choose to focus on logic and reason and proof and maintain morals mm-hmm. that are important to us, whether you believe that marketing is fundamentally evil as I do, just kidding. I mean, it's not fundamentally evil, but like, <laughs> I'm not going to endorse any products. And that's a line for me that I've chosen specifically because of the blurry, blurry lines in the field that I work mm-hmm. in. Right. And anytime I step over that and I've had multiple opportunities to do so, it's not that nobody's ever come to me saying, wear my yoga pants and take a picture of your ass sure. and put it up on Instagram and we'll <laughs> give you money. That has happened, you know, and could I have done that? Sure. Sure, I could have done that. Would people have looked at my ass? Yeah, that's not cool. I don't really want that either. So it's not part of my my overall marketing message because I'm not I'm not sitting here trying to say I don't have a marketing message. Of I course, do. right? I, of course I do, but it's not that. Mm. Yeah, it's not product based. I'm I'm not here selling you a thing that's going to solve all of your problems. Right. I am genuinely trying to show up in the space as an educator. Right. So as long as that's my goal, I can't be promoting products or I'm no longer, I'm not an educator anymore. Right. I'm a salesperson. Well, and that's, you know, and that's a difference because I mean, you know, so think about what are the, what are the emotions that an education message elicits? Ah, right. That's a good question. Yeah. It's like empowerment. It's possibility. It's excitement, right? Those motivate us to action. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, you know, when you've had like, you know, I mean, hopefully we've all had this, you know, experience, like you go to a class, you're like, oh my God, that that's like the most fascinating subject ever. And then you like dive down your own little rabbit hole, 
right? Like that's, that's motivating to action. And so those are emotions. If we can figure out how to dial those in, right? How do we elicit these emotions of, again, you know, excitement, possibility, ambition, not in a weird way, but like, you know, aspiration, again, not in a weird way, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Yes. This is how you do that. Moving up the ladder. <laughs> how do we move ourselves up the ladder? Right. Yeah. Rather than back down. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this is such a, this is, it's funny because, I, you know, I learned about this years ago in, in college, right? And I didn't think about it for a very long time after that. And it's come up in a, in a couple of courses I've taken recently, because I think the narrative and the conversation around this is really shifting. And it so gives me hope. Um because there, there is pushback against this manipulative messaging that's coming out. And, and this is how we're doing it. We're using old tools, right? We're right. saying, hey, this is, this is a thing. And we've already looked at this. And we know how this works. And we know that when people focus on positive emotions, when people focus on accomplishment, achievement, and success, right. not be in a, a, like, I don't have it kind of way, but in a, like, look what I've accomplished. And I, mm-hmm. I gained this knowledge. I understand it. Now I know how to use it. I can then analyze how I used it, right? And I could put it together with other skills that I have. And then I can also evaluate that and turn that into more skills and more actionable events. That's the long-term win, right? We talked right. about fear and, you know, manipulation being the short-term emotions that generate like a negative slide. This is the long-term positive mm-hmm. outcome of using these kinds of momentums to generate action. But they're not as immediate as fear. Right. Right. Yep. So it's trying to talk people into going for the longer game. Yep. Right. Like this is, this is why it's a hard sell. It, it can be a hard sell <laughs> because Until, there's so much contradictory messaging currently. Yeah. It's so a hard fear sell. messaging. It's a hard sell until you get to, for most people, I think, get to a certain point in your life. I think you and I talked recently, Chris, about your motivators and your often in your 20s versus in your 30s versus in your 40s, 50s. Um, I think, you know, a lot of if, if we're going to look at social media marketing, that's um, depending on the platform. But most of it is aimed at very young people, like in their teens and 20s. and they're not at that point where they're like, I've tried this and none of that really has ever worked for me. Um, It it may have worked short term, but it's never actually led me to anything sustainable. So they're not worried about, (laughs) they're just like, whatever we can give them, they'll give them the instantaneous results. And that's all, I mean, it's really, it's gross marketing. But they're leveraging people's lack of ability to use these tools we're talking about because naturally experience yeah. teaches you some of this and the older you get the more bad choices you've made <laughs> like more than you, have. you just haven't had a lot of chance to fuck it up you yeah. know it's like you still got a lot of screwing it up in your 20s to do right. and that's fine and that's part of the process no matter how good your cognitive skills are right that's right. just going to be part of that your your brain is wired for that you know you're yeah. not fully cooked they're finding out until you're like 25 now right yeah. so yep. i mean that's a lot of processing you're doing through college so it's like if we're waiting until college to be giving people these tools and skills we're not setting them up for success, right? We're not Mm -hmm. eliminating opportunities for them to make lots and lots of poor choices, which they're then going to have to unravel later. 
right? We're not doing a lot of favors here. So, you know, again, it's the long game. It's playing the, like, we should be presenting this stuff as early as middle school, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree, Liz, but. Absolutely. And what I will say is, um, this is actually back to one of the very first things you said, Chris. I don't know that presenting it in this kind of intellectual way works, but what does work is giving it in stories, Mm. right? Think about all the fables, all the fairy tales, right? These messages of the short term, yeah, like the shortcut never works, right? It's always about the long play, right? There's actually a lot Mm. of that built into our built into these again, fairy tales, fables, all of that, all of that young person's literature. Um Interculturally and, as well. Like yeah. this is not a unique Western culture no, concept. Absolutely not. Right. Concept. All life lessons are always embedded <laughs> in children's literature and, and yeah. oral oral traditions, right? I mean, there's a reason for that. And they're shockingly consistent across languages, cultures, and times. Mm-hmm. Like, Go and there's figure. actually um, so again in homeschool, I I, did, I only homeschooled for a year, but I have a friend who's been homeschooling forever and I've met a lot of homeschool families and there are often different motivations for homeschooling. But this one friend I have is like the most educated person I think I know on literally almost every subject, right? And what she had found as a tool was this, um, this history book called The Story of the World. And the story of the world starts at the very beginning, right, of recorded history mm-hmm. and goes through it. And not just from one cultural perspective, which I thought was super fascinating. And so this is one of my first opportunities going through these books and playing them because they were audio tapes. So we would play them in the car with just listening to them with my kid. And, you know, the number of fables that would come up, literally, like you're saying, you know, with the messaging, and then you'd hear a fable from another culture and it'd be like, right. oh, that's the same message. Oh, look, there's another one. Slow and steady wins the race. Like if right. you want to use good old Aesop, Right. But like that message is consistent throughout time, culture, mm. and, and, you know, language. Right. It doesn't matter. And mm. go figure. That's know, the right? Like, game, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you mean instant quick fixes are not the way? There's no oh, darn. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Oz. Oh, God. Life hacks, right? My daughter's been watching all these life hack videos. And it's, yes. and she, you know, I get it. It's gratifying. And it's, it's super rewarding to think, oh, gosh, I could just get this done, right? I could just achieve this thing without doing some of these other things I don't want to do. But the right. reality is, like, that's just unfortunately not the the existence we got plugged into. That's, you know, whatever matrix we're in, they put some rules in it, and right. these are some of them. You know, so sorry, we watched the the resurrections yes, the yes. other day, and I was like geeking out on that in my brain. But I think you know this discussion. Cheat codes has, don't work, is really what it boils down to. Right? <laughs> they don't work, right? There's no flying. You can't fly. Okay, it's sad, but true. Um, you know, but I think, I think this discussion has been fantastic for tying up some of the, the, the topics that Liz and I have been kicking around, um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to some of her belief systems around food and eating and, Mm -hmm. um, health, right. And, and why we all struggle because we all struggle somewhere with this. And, and when you step back and you realize it's about the messages that you've been hearing and what their motives are, that you can start to really distance yourself from that internally and say, ah, ha, ha. okay, right. I understand why I believe this. And now I'm free to not believe it anymore if I choose. 
Can I tell a little story? Of I was course. such a buzzkill when my son was <laughs> little. Uh, he was he was like, I don't know, three, four, five, like that time when like going to Target is just really hell mm-hmm. because we always want he always wanted to visit the toy aisle and then he always wanted to buy the toy. And so we just started looking at the box of the the Batman thing or the Hot Wheels thing or the th- whatever the thing was. And I'd be like, huh. So it shows it going round and round and like zoom. Do you think it really does that? And we would talk about how somebody was trying to trick us into buying toys that <sighs> didn't really do what they said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ah, uh, to have a moral philosophy professor for wow. a parent, Terrible. right? I hope somebody out there watches The Good Place because yes. <laughs> 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 moral philosophers. Yes. But yeah. but it got him to be a much more critical consumer of toys. And yeah. he was able to go, oh, when they have like the little, you know, the sparkly stars. That probably means it's not really flying off of the thing like that. <laughs> yeah. Which when you think about a small child's like, um, like cognitive processing, yeah. that's exactly what they expect, right? Exactly. Because they're so trusting and believing because right. they haven't developed this experience level right. yet of skepticism of being let down by things. And that's right. such a sad thing to think about. And But it is, you know, also somewhat reality. I was- well, and it, and it kind of came out of, you know, mm-hmm. buying disappointing toys and, yeah. oh, it looked like the guy was going to go flying, but it just kind of flopped. Right. And so, so that was part of it. It was like, oh yeah, that kind of stinks when it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. Let's maybe look really carefully here. Um, anyway, yeah, it's total building in, that's great though, but you were, no, but see, that's the thing. I think you were a buzzkill in the moment, but the right. killing of buzz was there baked <laughs> into the thing. You yes. just did it now instead of letting him get it home. Right. And finding out that it was disappointing. And you asked yeah. him to ask himself questions, right? Which is literally the tools we're trying to build here. Exactly. Like, hey, really try to genuinely get the reality of this situation, right? right? Is this really what you want? Does this really do the thing you think it's going to do? Right. Have you it tried something similar that didn't do it? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's not fun, you know, and I think we have we have a kind of joke in our house we say that fun is shunned and it's because of that and because we've taught the same things we've taught the critical thinking and we've looked at the instant gratification things and really asked our daughter to to think critically about it and say is this going to do what I think it's going to do how long am I actually going to play with this toy what do I expect these dolls to do when I get them home do you think they walk around on their own because I remember asking her that at one point she was like yeah I was like Okay, well, let's buy one and find out. It wasn't, no, it won't do that. I'm not there crushing dreams. Right. But also, like, let's really assess this. Let's look at the reality of the situation versus the the expectation that was set up. Right. Do they meet? And if If that doll is walking around on their own, I'm... I'm done. You're done. That's, that's a little Chucky, isn't it? It gave me, like, Chucky vibes, and I was like, nope, (laughs) nope. But when you're four... Yeah. Right. Like when you're four, it's, it's this magical opportunity. There's so much magical possibility in the right. world for you because you don't understand the framework yet. And you don't have to, because you have or when you see the commercial and the commercial, like it's doing the thing in the commercial. Yeah. They're alive in the commercial. 
So, you know, you start to realize this and it really changes. It does, I think, start to help you see the matrix and understand what's happening around you, you know, because I think as adults, having been victims of this magical marketing, Mm. we still believe it can do it for us. Why are there 8,000 life hacker articles? Right? We're still looking for the easy fix. Why does Sprouts have four aisles of supplements? Why? You know, it's like, okay, possibly there are some things that are somewhat beneficial, but it requires a certain amount of magical thinking to expect any oil from any plant to solve all of your problems or any tea <laughs> for that matter. You know, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm pooping on parties here, but like, this is why we say in our house fun is shunned. And, and we have real, what we think is real fun. We have experiences and we go out in the world and we do things, right? Rather than buying things and expecting them to meet expectations, which is not immediately fun, right? Teaching my daughter to ski has not been immediately gratifying <laughs> at all. I now, I see so many other parents on the mountain and I'm like, oh, solidarity. Someday this is going to pay off, but it's not today. <laughs> it's not today today they're screaming on the mountain you know (laughs) or so i saw so many parents yesterday with like the uh like uh it's like a leash basically they put this harness on their kid and they're like power snow plowing and the kid is just like down the mountain as hard as they can and it's like oh this is not fun for both parties right like (laughs) there's only some fun involved in that situation and you're creating a false paradigm for that kid in some ways there right like and you know not to make critical thinking a buzzkill because I think long-term it leads to sustainable happiness. It leads to real happiness, having a real take on what's going on and and what the outcomes are going to be versus, you know, just me selling you something that's going to shine something up temporarily. Mm. Life hacks shine things up temporarily. I like that. That's a quote. (laughs) Bumper sticker right there. Yeah, (laughs) that was my bumper sticker moment of the day. (laughs) Other Liz found out that used to be a ski instructor up at Eldora, which is how you knew where the bathrooms were when I needed them. (laughs) Uh Aha, your husband dropped that today in conversation that you used to teach teeny tiny children how to ski. Yes, yes. Yes. And well, what I say about that is what made me a good teacher, especially of first timers, is that I didn't learn to ski until I was 40. Mm-hmm. So I knew what it was like to be like, holy shit, <laughs> like, right? Like yeah. I knew that experience in recent memory. And so, <laughs> so I could like, you know, hold people's hands through that experience and be like, yeah, it's kind of trippy when you feel like you're sliding down the mountain, but guess what? That's what it's all about. Yeah. That's and cool. I, I really want to learn how to ski. Oh, come on out. I got plenty I, of places. That sounds awesome. It's so terrifying. It's a good time. But I think it's that beginner's mindset thing, right? Right. You know, you're talking about, I was a beginner recently, and it can be really hard once you've developed a skill to a certain level to remember what it was like to struggle with it. Or if you never had to develop that skill in the first place and you're trying to teach it. And this Mm -hmm. goes right back around to fitness marketing where you see young, usually very young, single People in the gym talking about no break days, no off days. I never quit. I just push through. Like that's I've never been injured. (laughs) I've never been injured. I don't have any other caretaking responsibilities that might prevent me from showing up today. 
because somebody else needs something from me. You know, there's a hundred things there, but they also often struggle when they become coaches to help people with more complex realities navigate them because they can't put themselves in that beginner's mindset. They, they've never experienced it. And if they don't practice that empathizing or that ability to see the situation from somebody else's perspective, it, it's not super effective right. for the person. Right. Right. So now you're paying a ton of money. And I've seen $5,000 programs from some of these influencers where they, they're they literally selling you a list of exercises and a, a list of foods to eat. Uh, and although that may work for a really small percentage of people, the reality is, is that like it's not knowledge they're lacking, right? Look at Bloom's taxonomy again. Knowledge is not usually where people get hung up. It's readily available. Whether it's accurate or not is the topic of the rest of today, but it's there. Yeah. Knowledge is not the problem, right? It's application. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this wow. has been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I am super excited about, you know, what we've gotten out of today and just sort of the putting all of these components together. And, you know, if you had to sort of sum it up, if you had a couple of takeaways for like why critical thinking is so important and what it can do for you, what would you say? I guess the it just helps you sort through the bullshit. That's the <laughs> That's a lot of bullshit. And yeah, to sort through. <laughs> there's there is. There's so much. And I feel like that's you know, I don't know if we want to blame the internet or what, but I feel like there's so much more to be sorted through at an ever younger age. Um Again, I just feel like, you know, certainly my child was not dealing with the volume of incoming information at the same age and rate as yours is, Chris. And, you know, and there was nowhere near what I was, you know, having to process through. And, you know, by the time really my critical thinking skills were absolutely necessary, my brain was pretty well cooked. Right. right? And and that's just not the case anymore. Um, And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting. And I think that's why we're seeing just what you're saying about, you know, like these mental health challenges for these really, really young people. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to me, quite frankly. Um, And so, but, you know, just again, as like, you know, an adult person in the world, like it just helps you sort through the bullshit. Um, and even your own bullshit, because believe me, yeah. like, <laughs> critical thinking skills are like you have some of your own bullshit and things totally. to get you through whatever you're going through. It's really important to pull that shit out as well and have just like smear it around and like have a look at it. And, you know, right. some of it you probably don't want to keep most of it if it's actually right. all shit. Right. So you but sometimes you have sentimental shit that you need to keep. I feel very George right. Carlin right now with like <laughs> their stuff is shit and my stuff is, is right. stuff. Yeah, that was it, right? So I, I think that's a great takeaway. I think that really sums it up well. It's like if you have some shit to sort out, this is a fantastic tool and you should do right. everything you can to get better at it.
Yeah. You're here. 